Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Some of the concerns around kids in watch houses is that there's no access to education, there's no access to fresh air. Academics and advocates say neurodivergent youth are disproportionately affected by juvenile detention. Also... We've got people who are experiencing poor mental health, not able to access care, but we have an answer here. Uh, and that answer is just as effective as if someone was seeing someone face to face. Experts are urging providers to meet the rising demands for telehealth mental health services in regional and remote communities. And later today... Companies also say that they will send that data to their entire corporate group, and that will include companies that are both in Australia and overseas. We all love that new car feeling, but new research has found modern cars come with increased privacy risks. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the ACT's new legislation decriminalising drugs for personal use came into effect over the weekend. Under the new legislation, anyone found with small quantities of illicit drugs will be subject to fines or diverted to health education rather than face criminal charges. Health advocates are urging the ACT government to go one step further and wipe the criminal records of people convicted with possession of illicit substances. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso spoke to Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, Chris Guff, about his own struggles with addiction and why decriminalisation is a move in the right direction. So in my 20s, I was a heavy heroin user and I ended up homeless and it took over a decade for me to clamber my way back into society, as it were. So what I can say is it was in my early 20s and and I can tell you that at that point in time that I was confronted by police and charged, you know, I really did have, have a, a fairly significant health issue and, if I, and I really did need to be pointing in the right direction direction for help and support and unfortunately that didn't happen and so it went down the alternative route of being charged and then my family found it very confronting to deal with the fact that they had a son who who was a criminal uh, was something that my mother really spent years struggling with and only because I was I had that wonderful support from my family working through these issues with me we spent years apart but now we're back together again as a family but this took a lot of support uh, and if you don't have that social capital then it becomes very serious. So in that respect would you consider advocating for the expunging of past criminal records for possession in light of these new laws? Do you think that should be an obvious and logical step for the ACT government to follow? Yeah, there are a few logical steps that I think should be progressed. That is definitely one of them. We know that people's criminal records you know, play a major part in what employment they can take up. And so, yes, we advocate that we definitely should be looking at past offences and expunging those. But there are 
other issues as well that we need to look at. It's not just the drugs of dependence legislation that needs changing and this will be for every jurisdiction as jurisdictions are going through this change of looking at drug use as a health issue. It's not just a single law. The system is replete with laws that back it up and so for instance in the ACT if you look at the Crimes Act it still has that people on parole for example are unable to use cannabis unless it's medicinal so that's out of step now with the ACT society in general and needs to be changed. The ACT police chief Neil Gagan says it would be naive not to think people would come down to the ACT over the weekend to get on the coke and not worry about the cops. His words not mine. Is that an extreme view or uh, is that a valid view or do you uh, think it may be extreme? Well, look, I think, look, I understand the police's concern, but I, do, I don't think it's likely, I don't think it's likely to happen at all. Police having the discretion to actually charge you, but also just the fact that, you know, unlike the cannabis legislation in the ACT, where you're allowed to possess up to 50 grams of cannabis or two plants, the drugs will still be taken away from you. So if you do come to the ACT on the Murrays, come to Canberra, um, thinking that, you, you know, somehow it's going to be a drug paradise, you'll be very shocked because the police will still take your drugs away from you and you won't have much of a party. I just don't think it's going to happen. I, I see why police would be concerned. They um, have for a long time now, the police, at least in the ACT, but I suspect it's across the country, have, haven't been focusing on possession and small amounts and people who use drugs, but they have always preferred to target big drug dealers and organised crime. And so obviously they, they are worried and concerned. What can the rest of Australia learn about this, this ACT experience? Well, I think the rest of Australia can learn a lot from the ACT experience. Uh, we've managed to do a number of changes now, and at each change there's been voices who have said, oh my goodness, the sky is going to fall in, you know, everything's going to be terrible, there's going to be anarchy in the streets. Um, this happened with the cannabis legislation as well. And what we've actually seen is that society is ready for these changes. And so we, we haven't seen any significant issues from the cannabis legislation. In fact, what we've seen is we've seen more people coming in to seek treatment at healthcare services such as Karma. At Karma, we've seen a fourfold increase in people who are coming in with cannabis as their primary drug of concern to talk about their issues. And we know that that's not an increase in cannabis users. Cannabis use has increased across Australia. It, it increased over COVID. That was Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance, Chris Guff, speaking with the National Radio News, Frank Bonacorso. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. In August this year, the Queensland Government pushed for laws allowing police watchhouses and adult prisons to be used as youth detention centres. The Government claimed the changes would address capacity issues while holding young people safely, even though the proposed laws would override the Human Rights Act. Academics and advocates say neurodiverse youth are among some of the most affected by juvenile detention. 
and the education system is where the issue begins. The Why is Merced Hernandez reports. Some of the concerns around kids in watch houses is that there's no access to education, there's no access to fresh air, and they're housed with adults as well. That was CEO of Queensland Advocacy for Inclusion, Matilda Alexander. In August of this year, the Queensland government made it legal for adult police watch houses to be used as youth detention centres. Youth have been held in adult detention centres for years, but recently cases are increasing. This has a concerning effect as criminalised children are some of the most vulnerable to human rights abuses in Queensland. So a community legal centre and a youth group called Youth Empowered Towards Independence brought a human rights challenge to the practice of keeping kids in watch houses. The challenge was seeking to say that that was in breach of their human rights and also in breach of the statutory duties. So in response to that, the government has bypassed the Human Rights Act, made an exception to the Human Rights Act, saying that children can be held in watch houses and that a human rights complaint cannot be made about their conditions. This law becomes even more concerning, as studies show neurodivergent and youth with disabilities are found more likely to be engaged in the youth justice system. And it starts in the education system. So we see a disproportionate number of kids with disabilities and neurodivergence being excluded from schools. Nearly half of the school suspensions and exclusions go to kids with disability, despite them being only 20% of the population. So it starts right at the right at that point in time. That's the first early warning sign. Kids with disabilities are being excluded from schools. And then you can see the trajectory from their building where they're starting to get involved with the criminal justice system Matilda says many of these suspensions are caused by a lack of accommodation for these children's needs. Behavioral interventionist Lynette Hernandez, who works with students and children with autism, says acting out and behavior issues are oftentimes caused and exacerbated by how adults respond to neurodivergent children. If people aren't respecting them when they're younger and as they're growing up and they have behaviors and someone's not being kind but firm with them because especially like the very very young kids with autism they can tend to have a lot of temper tantrums because of this lack of understanding and then if you get an adult that doesn't take the time and gets i'm going to say mean but does not respect them then i think it just spirals right where someone's not respecting the child the child's not respecting you back and instead of helping these children when they're young manage their emotions in some ways the way the adults are responding to them, it's just making it worse. Professor Keith McVilly, a researcher and psychologist who studies the rates of neurodivergent youth in the justice system, says that we should look at this behavior from a different perspective. Behavior is a form of communication. And the sooner we start looking at these kids' behavior, not as a criminal offense requiring a criminal justice um, response, but rather a cry for help from these young people a cry for help to get them out of the appalling situations they find themselves in, the fact that their home life is not good, the fact that their peer networks are not supportive of them, the fact that they've become disengaged from the education system. We need to look at these behaviours and we need to decode the message. Matilda says there isn't enough transparency in the education system 
And while some schools are doing better to keep students engaged, not all schools are kept accountable for excluding kids with disabilities. She says it isn't that they act out more, they simply need adjustments. Adjustments that can be the line between staying in school and suspension. Adjustments that can be as simple as a uniform. So, for example, if a student is being suspended because they are not wearing their uniform correctly and they have sensory issues, meaning that they can't do up their top button, having an adjustment requiring, that means that that student doesn't have to do up their top button because of the sensory issues. It's a kind of simple example, but far too often the simple solutions are not being applied, let alone the more complex ones. Professor Keith McVilly says a child-first approach is key to helping children in the justice system. And it's really about saying we've spent a lot of time trying to manage people's behaviour and control risks, and we've done a lot of locking up of these kids. But we haven't actually focused on their strengths. We haven't actually asked them where they'd like to go in life. That was Professor Keith McVilly, clinical psychologist at the University of Melbourne, speaking to The Wire's Merced Hernandez. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Katuba on 2RBM 89.1 FM, to our listeners in Tari on Bob Radio 104.7 FM, and to the other side of the country on Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. As regional Australians continue to struggle with accessing quality healthcare, experts are urging providers to meet the rising demands for telehealth mental health services. Approximately 28% of Australia's population live and work in geographically remote locations, with the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reporting higher rates of hospitalisation, death and injury, as well as poorer access and use of healthcare services. I spoke to Michelle O'Leith, Clinical Director at Healthbright, one of Australia's biggest telemental health companies, to learn more. So in regional and remote communities, you get the same number of people roughly experiencing poor mental health, but you get a much lower rate of access to healthcare. So say, for example, in major cities, you have about 73 psychologists per 100,000 people, but in um, regional and remote areas, it's about 18. So even though you've got the same amount of mental health people experiencing poor mental health, you have much lower access to healthcare. Is there a difference in the number of people looking to access mental health services? Yeah, no, it's not a difference in the number of people looking to access mental health um, services. It's just because they have... Um, less care and then because they have less care you have higher rates of I guess extreme situations so in um, 11 to 26 percent higher rates of overnight hospitalizations um, and 40 percent higher rates of self-harm and suicide in regional remote areas rather than metro so even though the people um, there's the same number of people experiencing mental health because there's less care it results in more drastic issues down the line. And with a lack of of access to these kinds of services. 
Do you think that acts as almost a deterrent for, for these people living in regional and remote communities? Seeking help for your mental health is a big step. Finding out that you're going on a 12-week wait list is probably not so encouraging. Exactly. And, and if you think as well, so, you know, thinking I've got a crisis happening right now, what, I've got to wait three months to be able to access care, that's going to be a deterrent. Plus, if you have... Um, psychologists working in the area, the areas are so much more small and close-knit. And so people then feel like they're so much more visible and they worry about confidentiality. And so accessing the care that is within your area, who you might bump into the person in the shopping centre, is just a little bit more of a barrier too. So, you know, things like telehealth, being able to offer people care with a person who is outside of their community means that the care is so much more accessible and also they can sort of feel more assured that they're going to have confidentiality. And not only that, but with telehealth, there's meta-analyses demonstrating, so this is one of our highest levels of research, demonstrating that telehealth is just as effective as face-to-face care. Do you find uh, people have an aversion to telehealth consult then like community attitudes overall might be a little bit more hesitant to speak to someone over the phone because they're worried that it might not be as effective look certainly we've got some information that kind of suggests that people are a bit more hesitant because they don't understand the system or they feel it might not be as effective as face-to-face care but then on the other side of things for health bright 40 percent of our consumers of our service are from regional and remote and so it suggests that people are seeing it as an alternative and a possibility for accessing care. What are we asking for for organisations providing these kinds of services to do in order to to meet these demands? I guess one of the things is for for organisations to meet the demand, they need to be culturally competent in working with people in regional and remote areas because the, the culture is slightly different often in regional and remote areas. You've got things like young people report feeling pressured to conform to local patterns of behaviour. Older people often are more living with more chronic conditions like pain or disability. Uh, and also you've got these regional specific kinds of incidents. So, so their incomes are heavily dependent on things that fluctuate like fuel prices or seasons or natural disasters. And so it means that the telehealth specialists need to be culturally competent for working with regional and remote areas. Also, they need to understand the Medicare rules around these things and what other telehealth acts um, sort of services are in for the areas for regional and remote. Um, And also, you know, to be honest, we need more care to be provided to regional and remote areas too. So we need to be able to sort of, I guess, put a little bit of pressure on being able to provide more services to sort of institutions. I can imagine there, I guess that's a whole other side of it if we're talking about Indigenous communities or regional and remote communities in culturally safe practices as well. Oh, completely. And I mean, I'm not First Nations, so I can't speak to it too well. But we do know that First Nations folks are three times higher um, for having uh, mental health uh, Uh, difficulties in regional and remote areas than um, even some of the other folks living in those areas. And what what are the repercussions if we see this gap widen with the healthcare staffing shortages? What are the repercussions for people living in regional and remote communities? Mm, Sure. So I I guess we're already seeing some of the repercussions with a a higher self-harm suicide rate, higher mental health hospitalisations. So those gaps are just going to stay there. Uh, if we don't f- like don't fill these areas and be able to provide more care by reaching out, and so I, I guess it's also you know there are a lot of um, organisations that are already in these areas. You've got Mission Australia, you've got Centre Care, you've got um, the Royal Flying Doctors, and so if they can partner with companies like Healthbright 
to be able to provide more services further out and actually take those services that have capacity to provide care within the next one to two weeks. Um, those kinds of collaborations will probably fill those gaps. That was Healthbright Clinical Director Michelle O'Leith closing that report. New research from the Mozilla Foundation ranks internet-connected cars as one of the worst categories when it comes to privacy. The research looks at the way car companies collect and use data and personal information, with 25 popular car brands failing their tests. In Australia, privacy laws are limited in protecting drivers' information from being gathered and sold, sparking calls for urgent reform. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with Catherine Kemp, Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales Faculty of Law and Justice, to learn more. It partly depends on the kind of car you have. So what we've been looking at lately is connected cars, cars that are connected via the internet, and these might be marketed as cars with connected services or connected features. They often come with an app. And when that's the case, they can be transmitting data in real time while you're driving about, choosing various functions and having various microphones, sensors and monitors detecting what you're doing. With this data, is it being sent to marketing agencies? Is it being sent to other organisations? Well, to tell the truth, in Australia, we have pretty vague information compared to some other countries like America, where the law requires companies to be more specific about exactly who they're sending that data to. So, So in Australia, looking at those privacy terms, we see some broad references to affiliates, for example. We're not exactly sure who affiliates might be. Companies also say that they will send that data to their entire corporate group, and that will include companies that are both in Australia and overseas, and also a range of companies that might be finance companies, dealerships, manufacturers, and so on. And aside from that, Quite a common term is for companies to say that they will share that information with government agencies or law enforcement. And you might think, well, that would surely be required by the law in some cases, but companies aren't limiting themselves to that. They're saying sometimes they will provide it to government agencies and law enforcement just when they think it's reasonably necessary to assist them rather than only when they're required to do that by law. But aside from that, There's a federal chamber of automotive industries in Australia that is an association that represents 68 brands and more than likely they would be representing your own brand of car. And they have something that they call their voluntary privacy code. And this is something that does not have the status of law. It's not enforceable. It's not binding on them. They're just saying we're voluntarily saying that we will, well, to tell a truth. They're not even saying that they'll be bound by it. They're saying these principles will drive our approach and we'll endeavour to do this and we'll seek to do that. So it's pretty weak language that is not actually committing to do any of the things in that document. It's just essentially saying this will influence us. Now, with the privacy laws, in terms of reforming them to improve privacy or domestic civilians, how should that go about? So when we're looking 
looking at these issues that are arising here about the fact that this data from people's cars can be sent to numerous other organisations and used for purposes that they're not going to be expecting, like, for example, customer research or customer profiling, marketing strategies and law enforcement, as I mentioned. If we're thinking about the fact that people are not expecting all of those extra uses of their data. There are some amendments to our existing out-of-date privacy law that would really help consumers. So, for example, if we created higher standards for consumer consent, this would help. At the moment, our privacy law says that it's okay for companies to just get implied consent. So, you don't have to be signing up to anything, ticking I agree and so forth. Sometimes, companies are simply relying on the fact that somewhere on their website there is a privacy policy and they're expecting that you will have read that and they're saying, so we imply your consent. And there's also the possibility of the introduction of a fair and reasonable test that would go beyond that question of whether you've read the privacy policy and ask a more substantive question, which is, is it fair to use consumers' personal information and often very sensitive information in these ways so that a court could consider whether a company is really going beyond that kind of standard of fairness and rein in some of these excessive uses of consumers' data. That was Catherine Kemp, Associate Professor at UNSW, ending the report with The Wire's Tony Pankalewicz. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire. Thank you.